Welcome back to On the Nose, the Jewish Currents podcast. My name is Nathan Goldman, and I'm the managing editor of Jewish Currents. I'm thrilled to be joined today by three members of the Teshuvah Writing Collective of the Trans Halakha Project, initiative of Sfara, a queer and trans yeshiva. Earlier this year, the collective published a series of Teshuvot, interpretations of Jewish religious law, that speak to questions of Jewish life and practice for trans people. The Teshuvot consider a wide range of important aspects of trans-Jewish life, from questions like who is obligated under the ritual of Brit Milah, circumcision, and prescriptions around nidah, menstruation, to whether it's permitted to wear a chest binder when immersing in the mikveh, a ritual bath that traditionally requires nudity. While there has been some previous work to apply halakha, Jewish law, to specific questions of trans life, almost none has been authored by trans people themselves until now. To discuss this exciting project, I'm joined by three of the Teshuvah authors, Lainey Solomon, co-director of the Trans Halakha Project and associate Rosh Hashiva of Sfara, Alex Bernstein, a Jewish professional and educator, and Rabbi Chava de Cordova, Rosh Yeshiva of Shel Ma'ala, an online queer yeshiva. Thank you all so much for being here with me today. Thanks. Yeah, our pleasure. Thank you for having us. I wanted to start by asking about just some basic terminology. I think many of our listeners will be familiar with the word teshuva and its meaning as a word for repentance, but maybe not in this specific context. And then I was also struck by the way that halakha was defined on the webpage for the Trans Halakha Project. It's you know, traditionally or often now thought of just as meaning law, but it was defined on that page as pathways and practices of Jewish expression. So I wondered if you, know, if you could give us a quick introduction to those terms as you conceive of them in the context of this project. It feels seasonally appropriate to dig into the word tshuva. As you said, Nathan, is connected to the idea of repentance most often, especially as it's understood in interpersonal dynamics and healing and reconciliation. Tshuva is a noun with the root shin, vav, bet, which means to return or to turn, and also to answer. So here we're interacting with a genre of rabbinic literature that is basically question and answers. And throughout history has been a way of engaging with teachers and comrades who live in different places often, the practice of letter writing to rabbis or community leaders to answer questions related to practice or different things one might do. So those are a genre called she'elot u'teshuvot, shilas and shuvas, questions and answers. And so we are using that language. And I also want to uplift one interpretation that one of the coordinators who helps do the work of the Transalacha Project, Olivia Devora, offered that there's something in the connection between these two words, shuva as a restoration or as a process of healing and shuva as a process of answering that we see this work as healing. We see, as you said, Nathan, these questions haven't been asked by trans people to other trans people and answered by trans people. So there is a healing element too. There is a restoration and a repair that we see as happening as part of this process. So I think we're, we're operating on a double meaning with that word here. I think also there's something on the funnier side for me, thinking about the genre of literature that we don't have 
as much in Judaism, but the genre of apologetics, writing that's a defense of the faith. When I was writing my teshuva, I really felt like I was writing an, an apology for my own hot take by way of explanation, you know, a little, a little repentance for having so hot a take. That's my third layer of flavor to add on to the term. Your hot take is a restoration, Chava, restoring <laughs> the hot takes to our tradition. Thank you. I'm, I'm honored. And I wonder how you think of halakha in relation to the kind of understanding of, of law, or if you think it sort of transcends that definition. The word halakha, it literally means like it's related to walking, right? Like lalechet, to walk. It's not just about the law and the prescription of the law. That's certainly part of what halacha looks like in a lot of communities. But ultimately, halacha is a way of doing Jewish. It is a way of being a Jew. Now, when most people say halacha, they are referring primarily to a very narrow vision of what that looks like. Mostly through an orthodox lens, sometimes you'll meet people who are like, there's a conservative version of halacha too, or there's a halachic egalitarian version of halacha. But Ultimately, I think the most expansive definition of what halacha means and the one I see as operative in the Chuv Writing Collective and in the way I experienced that was ways of doing Jewish that are seriously committed and accountable to Jewish tradition while also recognizing and incorporating the people doing them. And we didn't come in, all of us in the collective, with the same version of what that looks like our Judaisms look different. So for me, I come from a more traditionally observant lens. And so for me, what halacha looked like was more similar to the kind of more narrow definition. But what for some of my co-collective members it looked like was much more you know, expansive and grounded in their lived reality as Jews. And that's part of what I think was special was very rarely do you get halachic dialogue and halachic conversation across those kind of different approaches. We were very intentional about what we called our hashgacha, our, our approach to halacha. And so that dialogue, I think, was really rich and, and produced something very interesting at the end when we're putting all of these alongside each other, some of which are looking at the Beit Yosef, which is a very classical work of halacha from the 16th century, and some of which are, we don't care about the Beit Yosef. We're doing our, a different thing. And that's kind of two different sides of the coin that are all under that word halacha. I'll just add to this piece. I love what you said, Alex. I agree so much. The dynamic, different understandings of halacha that brought people into this project for me is so inspiring. And I just want to offer that I think Understanding halacha as Jewish law exclusively constrains or restricts our understanding of halacha and contorts it into how we experience law from a Euro-American Protestant state-backed enterprise, which is not a correct assessment of what halacha is or what it's trying to do. So if we understand it as law, it necessitates more expansive understandings of what law is which is a thing that includes discourse and narrative as opposed to just rules and regulations that are enforced by a state. And I think that's one of the things that has turned off a lot of our people from the idea of halacha is its over-conflation with law as we understand it within a, a state-backed context. I think also 
my experience of halakha, and I like to imagine that there are probably a lot of other Jews out there who have a similar experience, is that it falls into the I know it when I see it category. Halakha is just sort of this undefinable presence that all Jews sort of know is around all the time. We all sort of feel its gravity on our lives, whether we choose to respond to that pull or how we choose to respond to that pull. I think even if you're a completely, quote unquote, non-halachic Jew, you're still sort of orienting yourself in relationship to this celestial legal body. And I think that that helps me think of the Transhalacha project in the broadest possible terms. For me, everything that a Jew does in response to this liminal force in our lives falls under the umbrella of Halacha. And over time, those responses have built up into this edifice that we can reference and use to inform our own responses. But it is sort of this unnameable quantity that, that permeates all of Jewish life. I'd love to hear a little bit about how both the Transhalacha Project and the Shuba Writing Collective emerged. What were the circumstances that made these projects feel both necessary and possible now, and how did they come together? And I'd also love to hear what brought you to this work. I think this project first came into being with the Talmud. The Talmud is evidence and a record of a group of people, we call them the rabbis, who felt disenfranchised by the Jewish tradition of their time and who created an alternative that became a powerful thing that we now know as rabbinic Judaism. And one of my greatest teachers about this this movement is Rabbi B'nai Lapi, who describes the rabbis as queer in their project of subverting the tradition that they inherited and using the tradition to build a new thing that they called the tradition. So there's a very powerful subversive element built into the tradition that we've been given. So I think how this project came into being was through an earlier emboldened ancestry that we're tapping into that was gifted to us by the early rabbis of the Talmud. And the way this particular expression of that came into being is lots of trans folks asking each other questions and making hidden Google Docs for how we do various things and a lot of energy towards building a thing that could contain these expressions. And so Rabbi Becky Silverstein is the co-director of this project and I were excited to help create a container for our people to come together and find new expressions within the tradition to help us do this work in cahoots. And the Chuva Writing Collective came into being as one avenue of our work in which we are authoring questions to the answers that we are seeking. So I think one element of how this project came into being was a sense of resistance and dissatisfaction that trans folks including myself, were experiencing with what I like to call dysphoric halacha, halacha that is created by cis folks to contort trans bodies and experiences into existing categories. We were seeking instead what we like to call euphoric expressions of halacha, halacha that is revealed in our euphoria, the places where we feel aligned, the places where we give evidence and give voice to something that was underneath that needed us to find it and reveal it. And so 
our hope is through the Tshuva Writing Collective to get out of a frame of dysphoric halacha and create new resources that will help all of our community move towards more euphoric expressions of, of halacha. I'll say for my own sort of being drawn towards the Trans Halacha Project and towards the Teshuva Writing Collective in particular, the story of my life is that I was cursed with an abundance of girl boss energy at birth. And my quest and destiny since then has been to learn how to use it for good instead of evil. And what is Halachot and Teshuvot, if not the logistics, the P's and Q's of Judaism and Jewish life? And that kind of work requires that energy. And to me, feels like the next step for this thing that seems to be emerging into the world, which is this very distinct flavor of queer Judaism that I think has gained a lot of momentum in the past decade-ish I think the next step of evolution for that has to be sort of the hard movement building work of figuring out practical details, dealing with hard questions, getting down in, into the brass tacks of it all. And that kind of work is exactly the kind of stuff that I am perversely drawn to. So when I saw that this was a possibility, I, I immediately knew that I had to find a way to work on it. Thank God for the perverse drawing. <laughs> it felt like a very natural evolution of the work that was already happening at Svara, at Shalmala, at the many queer Jewish learning spaces that are popping up, which is to say that, you know, we're all learning Talmud. That's the first step. This group is now, okay, now let's learn the next step, which is let's put the, the Talmud into practice and let's learn the Shulchan Aruch. Let's learn the Beit Yosef. Let's learn all these next step things that haven't quite happened yet. And so in that way also, I think what we've done and what is going to continue to be done at the Transalacha Project is doing that movement building work to create a new Jewish space. I'd love to, to dive into some of more of the specifics, some of the particular questions that this batch of Shuvot focus on and why those felt like particularly urgent or compelling subjects. And I think also... I know that the documents are, many of them, long and very intricate, but I think if you wanted to speak a bit to some of the kinds of conclusions that you came to on the questions. I wrote a teshuva on whether trans women are obligated in Nida, the Jewish halacha surrounding menstruation. And we knew from the beginning that, that Nida and Mila were going to be the main central topics, but I specifically wanted to address trans women's relationship to menstruation because I felt like it was the biggest thing to take down, <laughs> you know, sort of the biggest target that needed to be attacked halachically. I start out my paper by addressing why trans women are implicated at all. When we read in the Torah, when the Torah is first talking about putting these laws into practice, there's this verse that introduces the laws with the phrase, if a woman has a flow and her flow is blood. And if you, as I believe we must, believe that trans women are women, then you either have to convince me that the Torah means something else by the word woman or that trans women are women. Those are the two options we have from that place. Otherwise, we have to figure out how trans women are implicated in that verse because it says, if this happens to a woman, then do X. 
And that automatically puts us under that heading. And it's that kind of revisiting the fundamental suppositions that underlie halakha that is so um, powerful about the work that the Trans Halakha Project does, I think, going down to fundamental assumptions about who is and isn't involved in different mitzvahs or communal activities and challenging those and, and coming up with our own answers. For me, when I was writing Machuva, I wanted to go back and ask a different question from Kava, one that's already been asked, which is, I was also looking at Nida, but for transmasculine people. And I also wanted to look at Brit Mila for transfeminine people, because the discussions that have already been asked that involve those things tend to kind of take the approach of this is totally blowing everything up. This is a new thing. You know, we've always thought that men have penises and women have vaginas and halacha has never had to incorporate any divergence from that before. And I said to myself, I don't think that's true because as has been discussed in a lot of different venues in a lot of different ways since 2006, when Rabbi Elliot Kukla published his dissertation and his work on the androgynos there is a degree of admission of gender variance in Jewish law that may not look exactly like trans people today, but does, I think, have wisdom to offer. And the way I thought about that was through translation, right? Which is a concept that I kind of developed from the academic work of another trans scholar, Max Strassfeld, which is to say that these are not the same thing. They're different things but we can translate, we can adapt the wisdom or the approach that was used by the rabbis for the androgynos to understand how a maybe, you know, more expansive, more liberated version of the rabbis would have approached trans people today. And that paradigm of translation, I think, is very live in halacha in general. You're literally translating halacha. It's written in a different language, even for native Hebrew speakers. Rabbinic Hebrew and modern Hebrew are not the same language, so you have to do some translation in a very literal sense, but then also to take ideas and concepts and a lived experience that is different from ours, where they have candles that have to light up their houses at night instead of electric lights, where they use ovens that are closer to Indian tandoori ovens. They couldn't clean things in the way that we can clean things now. So anytime we're making halacha, we are translating the wisdom of the Talmud and, and trying to replicate their approach. So I used the androgynous as a halakhic model and used the approach that the rabbis take to kind of model what that could look like. You have to use the wisdom of the past in a non-literal way to inform the present, right? And part of what I really appreciated about the other tshuva, and I'll mention the one you said before about binders in the mikvah, is that that's a question that only comes from actually lived experience, right? You're not really going to think about that if you're a cis person trying to do a thought experiment. It's really something that comes out of trans people saying, I want to immerse in a mikvah. How do I do that in a way that doesn't make me feel horrible and exposed and violated? I called it halachic misgendering. When people use halacha as a cudgel to misgender trans people. And I really wanted to have everything I wrote be informed by that experience that I've had of halachic misgendering. I'm really inspired by that framework. And that feels like precisely what I was trying to do in my chuba, which is about a very, very specific question that I experienced. And so it emerged directly out of my own experience, which is something I tried to prioritize. 
And the question I was trying to answer is what is the bracha? What's a blessing that one should say when applying testosterone gel daily? There were a lot of elements that I was trying to incorporate. The daily element of it, the testosterone gel, as opposed to other modes of interacting with HRT. Is there anything physically about the gel and how it works that interacts with my body such that it would dictate or inform what blessings should be made over it? And I started from the assumption that a blessing should be made over it. Part of what I'm doing by asking this question is assuming that halacha can speak to me and assuming that halacha can be driven by my experience. This is a thing that's part of my life. I say brachas over everything else in my life. And so the core question that I tried to ask in my own investigation is what blessings that exist mirror and express the kinds of things that I am experiencing so that I can use that blessing as a language to express and give traditional voice to that particular experience. So it's a new thing, but it's not a new fundamental experience to experience change. It's new to experience change in this particular way, in this particular moment, in my particular body, but it's not new to plant seeds and see what happens when they harvest. It's not new to express gratitude for rain because you know the outcome will be bounty, which are some of the images connected to the bracha that I ended up exploring and, and concluding in the end. I'm curious if there were particular moments, and I think you've spoken a little to some of these, but but other moments of interpretive insight that stood out to you, you know, moments where you found an unexpected resource or resonance in an older text or through the process of doing this interpretive work came to a conclusion or way of seeing things you didn't expect or that shifted your understanding. I'm sort of interested because these are such richly technical processes of interpretation. I'm, I'm interested in getting into the weeds, I guess, to see if there were moments like that 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 stand out. I've got one right off the dome. I had this really special experience with a, a source, a halacha from Maimonides, from the Rambam, the halachic authority a lot of folks may have heard of. So he has this really different and mostly unfollowed and obscure and bizarre opinion about the way that Nida works. So Maimonides writes in his halachot around Nida that the way that it works is that you establish the date your Nita cycle begins, then you have seven days of Nita, then you have 11 days of Ziva, which is sort of like a different kind of forbidden status, and then that cycle just repeats, regardless of what's happening with your body. Whether you bleed or don't bleed, this metaphysical cycle of Nita and Ziva status is always operating, and sometimes you bleed in a way that coincides with it, and sometimes you don't. But it's just, for him, something that is fundamental to what he thinks of as women's bodies that just is happening all the time, which is a ludicrous take. <laughs> it's, it's really just wild and, and sounds so different to the way we think about Nita and, and Ziva today. And I'm simplifying it a little bit, but it's, it is as wild as it sounds. And this was exciting for me initially because it was an example of Nita status operating in a way that was independent from the menstruation itself. So it was a great place for me to start on my work. But on a meta level, the reason that it was more exciting is because this 
Halakha, which Maimonides, I'm almost certain, authored out of uh, both like misogynist and arrogant assumptions that he knew how people's bodies worked better than those people themselves, because he certainly wasn't interested in listening to women's opinions on how Nita worked. And one of the ways I think about Judaism is it has this rule that we can sort of interpret anything any way we want to, but we're not allowed to throw anything away. Because of that, we have these weird bits and bobs like this halacha from Maimonides that we don't know what to do with because they're messy and they don't fit into any of the places that we need them to. And I can repurpose that as a way of showing, for instance, how the rabbinic model of womanhood is socially constructed. And Nita is fundamental to that social construction. And this sort of distasteful origin of this misinformed halacha could become the foundation for what I hope will be a a liberatory halacha for trans women everywhere. And the opportunity to turn something yucky into something beautiful is part of what's so magical about this work and this whole process to me. I love the idea, Hava, of the Rambam just waiting for you. Like he just has been hanging out on the shelf, agitating people for centuries until you, Chava, came along to restore him to uh, a liberatory purpose. It's really generous of you to imagine that the Rambam would wait for any woman. Um. (laughs) (laughs) Only you, Chava. The image for me that came up when you asked this question, Nathan, was one where I felt like the Talmud taught me back something about my experience that I had forgotten, which is I explored and spent time investigating the bracha hatov hametiv, which is basically a blessing on improvements or increased goodness. And that is the the blessing that I landed on that now has become part of my daily practice of, of blessing the improvements and increasing that comes from increasing and improving my hormonal regulation here. And what the Talmud offers is you say this blessing in some cases where you find a lost object. And the Talmud asks, you know, finding a lost object isn't an entirely good, pure improvement. Finding a lost object can actually put you in danger. Because if the king hears about this new object that you have found, he's going to come for you and he's going to take your object amazing statement about kings and how fucked up they are. But I loved this moment where the Talmud recognizes that this blessing comes not just in unambiguous moments of bliss, but that having those moments of bliss opens you up to haters and opens you up to harm and opens you up to the danger that comes from being integrated and living with euphoria as a trans person. It opens you up to the dangers of empire and specifically thinking about this king was such a powerful opening for me to sit with the ways in which this blessing doesn't require only feeling happy. That the improvements can come with all sorts of anguish or anxiety or concern about all sorts of things that are real and that don't take away from the power of them. So that was a moment I felt like I remembered or re-remembered a part of my own relationship with 
testosterone that was really expansive and really healing to find. I think what I have learned the most from my work and from reading the work of others is we don't give our tradition enough credit in terms of how it can speak to our lives as queer people, as trans people, as feminists, as people grounded in a left-wing tradition of social liberation. And I think that when we're looking at the rabbis confronting things like gender, okay, they may not be on the same page as we are, but they have a more sophisticated understanding than I think we give them credit for, and then I think then our society writ large does. And that isn't to say that it's perfect, but that's why we're here. We're here to keep working on it, and that's not to say that we're perfect either. And when I was writing it, I felt very much, we are the first generation of authors, of thinkers, of halachists who are engaging with trans people and who are trans people. And I was thinking back to the first generation of feminists who were doing the same thing for women 50 years ago, who were saying, how do we get women to be equally obligated in Jewish law, should they be equally obligated in Jewish law? I found myself making pretty similar conclusions to the first generation of feminist halachics, which is that obligation is not necessarily the paradigm we want to be operating through. And that kind of kinship with feminism, but but also with a lot of other movements in halacha, to kind of say we're taking a first step and that this is going to be a continued conversation that is going to go forward was really powerful. That piece that you shared, Alex, really reminds me of one of the reasons that I think that trans work and halachic work have such a, a natural simpatico between them. I think that halacha has always been a tool of personal and communal self-creation. When the rabbis did halacha for the first time, they were sort of speaking into existence what they wanted a Jew to be and what they wanted a Jewish community to be. And they were intentionally writing self-fulfilling prophecies. They were saying, this is the way it is, in hopes that that's the way it would become. And for me, and I imagine for many others, that is often the way transition can feel. You know, this is what my gender is in hopes that I will be recognized in that, in hopes that I will feel that within myself. Transition is sort of an ultimate tool of self-creation. And taking it on intentionally as a tool of recreating halacha in a way that works for trans people just feels so natural once I saw those two processes and how they were so closely related. Because... Judaism is so decentralized. It seems like a project like this one raises questions about authority, who has the right to make decisive interpretations on questions of religious observance. That seems like a question that's also at play in terms of what you were talking about, Laney, in terms of dysphoric and euphoric halakha and you know, authority in a in a sense about one's own experience and who has the right to, in a way, legislate about it, though that's not the full frame. And, you know, I was thinking of, it's a piece I believe in in your Shuva, Alex, where you, in the introduction, talk about the fact that you're not a rabbi and sort of, I don't know if caveat is the right word exactly, but sort of frame your insights in those terms as a kind of resource, but framing the kind of bearing or authority they might have sort of within that context. And so, you know, all these things just made me wonder about how you all think about that question of authority when doing this work, or if that doesn't seem like the right frame at all? That's a great question to ask. And I think authority is certainly part of halacha and has been a part of halacha, because I think in our conversation before about what halacha means, 
that was kind of behind a lot of what I think we were thinking about. Is there an authority behind halacha? Is there a motivating force? If you compare halacha to law, to Anglo-American law at the very least, what enforces that is violence, the threat of arrest or litigation. Whereas depending on your community, your version of God, halacha doesn't have that. And so authority in halacha can either come from a personal relationship, an understanding of God and what you understand, like the aspect of punishment to be from a divine source. And also there's a communal aspect to it. You know, if you go and become a full member of a Hasidic community and then film yourself lighting a fire on Shabbat, you might lose all your friends. And that's also, I think, an important method of enforcement for halacha. But overall, most halachic enforcement comes from the self. It's a self-discipline. People get to choose or feel compelled or move in the way that fits them. How do I want to live my life as an individual? Even though halacha is a communal experience, it still comes down to the individual. I think this is a hot take for a rabbi to have, but the existence of rabbis is basically a manifestation of our failure as the Jewish people to empower people and give them the opportunity to become competent halachic decision makers in their own right. In my opinion, in an ideal world, we would never feel any need for rabbis as halachic decision makers because everyone who wanted it would have the opportunity to learn everything that they wanted to learn. And so the way I think about authority is I sort of imagine myself into living in that world already. And I think of everyone who's reading these Teshuvot as a perfectly competent halachic decision maker, which I think fundamentally they, they are. And maybe they just need some more information. And so it's like any informed consent model. It's my responsibility in the paper to rigorously and clearly and accessibly present the information that backs up what I'm saying. But ultimately, it's in everybody else's hands how they choose to use that information because they are the the halachic decisors at the end of the day. And anyone who makes their halachic decisions for them only does that because they've been given that authority by that person. So ultimately, it's all a secretly a bottom-up model masquerading as a top-down model. So I just choose to to live in a world where things are as I want them to be in hopes that that will get us a little bit closer to it. just want to co-sign Chava's hot take here, which is at the core of this project is a commitment to embodying an alternative halachic paradigm that relocates authority from somewhere else to yourself. And that is not a departure from halacha as it has been given to us. It's a departure from halacha as it has been told to us by people who have their own stakes in maintaining authority. The tradition fundamentally and natively understands the ways in which halachic decision-making is impossible without direct experience of a thing. And our tradition over and over tells us that the most essential source of authority is the individual's experience. Even a judge cannot judge about something that they have not truly encountered and understood. So even someone called a judge who is imbued with power and authority, the Talmud tells us they have nothing 
if they haven't actually understood, perceived, and experienced the thing about which they are judging. And so this hot take of all empowered people, I love it, I agree, and I think the Talmud endorses it entirely. That is how halacha was imagined by the early rabbis, who were a community of people, not only teacher and student, they were comrades, and they were figuring out how do we be comrades together. Now that these teshuvot have been in the world for a few months, I'm curious what any of you have been sort of hearing so far about the ways that Jews are putting them into practice or building on them in their own lives, and what your hopes are for the ways that they might be taken up. Halacha is about practice, and it's also about discourse. And it's one of the features of halacha that it's enacted not just through individual behaviors, but that learning it is how it is enacted. And that's one of the most, I think, dynamic and intriguing features of halacha as a a way of being, is that it isn't only behavioral, it's also about magnification of discourse at its core. So what I've seen is folks learning these chuvot. I don't know who's like saying hatov v'hametiv when they put on T-gel, but my hope isn't actually that people do that practice. My hope is that people are impacted by this magnification of discourse and that this in turn supports their magnification of discourse in the broadest sense, that these concepts and frameworks about authority, about autonomy, about agency, about recovering problematic pieces and subverting them, as Chava mentioned earlier, about translation, which Alex mentioned, that those become a part of how people who are learning halacha and therefore creating it continue to co-create. For me, on a practical sense, I've been very honored to hear of people studying my teshuva. Someone told me recently they put it in a syllabus for a college course they were teaching. I find that very intimidating. (laughs) (laughs) But just to know that the work is being engaged with both in a practical and in a study setting has been so beautiful. And I hope will as the Teshuvah Writing Collective, God willing, continues, create a norm of people feeling like they should be engaging with the hottest, freshest trans scholarship on trans issues as an ordinary part of their study, as something that's de rigueur for being involved in halakhic discourse. I think part of what I find interesting, for those of us who wrote about Mila, Brit Mila, about circumcision, that's not really something an individual gets to choose for themselves because most of the time the people we're talking about are converts who are relying on a rabbi to shepherd them through this process of conversion. And I don't know if there are a ton of trans women who are converting, who are encountering rabbis who are making them have free milah and can say, actually, I found this source or who are worried about the requirement which does exist for conservative Jews to for them to have free milah, but have rabbis who are saying, no, no, don't worry. I know about this resource. I don't know if that's happened yet, but I hope that that's what eventually will happen, that we will have people who come into the Jewish community who are held and affirmed by the work that we've done. And I also think the the other part of that also is and this I'm thinking particularly about the work of one of my collective members, Ariel Berry, Ariel Do Not Now, just got married, who really was honing in on the issue of giving a brit milah to someone for whom it's medically dangerous. 
which is a live issue in halacha. And I know that because it's an issue of discussion among people who are responsible for conversions. So it's not just trans halacha we're touching here. There are bigger halachic questions. You know, Rabbi Jamie Weisbach's Chuvan Chatzitza on binders in a, in a mikveh has implications for other prosthetics and medical devices and immersion with those, which is an area of halacha that thankfully has been explored and written about, but continuing that conversation. And that's something that I hope that this will land beyond just trans people, that the ideas and the, the, the way we're pushing halacha forward is going to go beyond that. And I don't know if that's happening, but I hope it will and that it is. One of my primary motivations in writing my teshuva was looking around and realizing that as far as I could personally discover, there was nothing that I could find of a trans woman writing about Nita for trans women ever before this moment. And if a trans woman out there picks up my teshuva and reads it and says, this is the most foolish trek I've ever read, I'm going to ignore this forever. I love that, actually, because at least now she had access to serious engagement on the material from someone who understood it, who is a part of the community. She had the the resource she deserved to reject. My greatest sense of whether these Teshuvot have been successful is if someday someone writes a paper called like the disputation of Chava de Cordova's completely mistaken <laughs> and foolish take on Nita. Yeah, the reactions to our Chuvot that are like published, if that ever happens, will be will be very fun to read, I'm sure. I'll bring us to a close by asking what's next for the Chuva Writing Collective and for the Trans Halakha Project for people who want to be, be following the work you all are doing, what's sort of on the horizon? I will say for the Teshuva Writing Collective and also for Shalma'ala, my yeshiva, we are collaborating on a shiur series, a lecture series that will be going all through the fall, starting on October 19th and going all the way to December 21st on those Thursday evenings. A lot of the writers of the Teshuvas from the Teshuva Writing Collective, along with an author from Tefillah Trans, which is a book of ritual and prayer that was also published by the Trans Halacha Project this year, will be offering learning on the topics of their Teshuvot that people can come to and enjoy and savor. So I highly recommend that people who are interested in these topics will put a link to the registration in the show notes. So you should all definitely come to that and take the next step on the journey with these Teshuvot. Also, we're going to keep writing and we're going to kick off a second cohort of the Chuba Writing Collective, God willing, in February. We are coalescing around a central topic, which is Priya Uravia, fruitful multiplication, which will include questions related to procreation, reproduction, queer family building, decisions not to have children, surrogacy, and all sorts of ways that that topic has tendrils that we're excited to see what Torah trans folks will find in it and about it through our own bodies and lives. And I think what I have found to be really special is just the members of our first cohort are really brilliant and are still out there teaching, whether that's at Sfar or Shomala, or some of them are in rabbinical school and about to begin their career. Some of them are already rabbis and in their careers. And some of us are early career professionals who are still figuring this whole thing out. We're not going anywhere. And I think that we're going to continue to teach, to learn, to 
grow, to share what we have to say, whether that's, you know, through the big scale stuff of the Chuva Writing Collective or on a small scale in our communities, in our classrooms and, and in our lives. And that I think is never going to stop, which is amazing. Thanks so much to all of you for joining me today and to our producer, Jesse Brenneman, and thanks to our listeners. Please rate, review, and subscribe to On the Nose and subscribe to Jewish Currents. And you can find us online at jewishcurrents.org. See you next time. <laughs>